We'll start. We'll start. Now we want. Not really going to work. I guess it's not. Okay, we'll just hope this other thing works. Um, your software is so strange to me. What did you think of the clouds? But not probably for the reasons that the Greeks thought were funny in some cases. Like what? Well, like like they like they would have thought wrong was obviously wrong by virtue of being counter to their um to their common knowledge. Whereas we see wrong as making a lot of interesting, reasonable arguments and pretty much thrashing right. Mm-hmm. What and what are the reasonable arguments that wrong makes? <laughs> You're gonna get one. Good. Or why do you think it's funny, Helena? What do I think is funny? Yeah. Um, the, the study of the um, gnats, whether they come from their ass or their mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or um, wrong proves that hot baths are not bad because Hercules um, took hot baths, and to say that hot baths are bad would mean to say that Hercules is, uh, is doing bad things. Okay, good. Um... So the, what, do you remember one of the accusations against Socrates in the Apology? It's part of the reason, there, there are various reasons to do Aristophanes. We'll probably talk a little bit more about Plato today than Aristophanes, but we'll talk about both. Um, there are various reasons to do Aristophanes. One is um, that Socrates refers <coughs> to the clouds in the Apology and says that's it's a bum rap. Um, the, the, uh, the version of, of me that you get in that play, while funny, is wrong. Yeah. Did Aristophanes actually do Socrates like that? Just think John Stewart. Okay. Okay, so, you know, they were friends. They were at the okay. banquet together. Um, th but they're also, they have genuine disagreements, and it's actually worthwhile talking about what those disagreements are. It's not only that, it's, it's you know, like John Stewart, um, and maybe a little bit like Stephen Colbert, um, Aristophanes is kind of giving you fake news, which is real news. That is, if you're getting your news from Aristophanes, or if you're getting um, political analysis from Aristophanes, and there's a lot of political analysis in Aristophanes, it's funny, but it's pointed. And um, mainly it's pointed in the sense that whenever Aristophanes talks about real people, not when they're in the play, like Socrates, but when he talks about real people, um, the, the jibes at them have to do with real things. So to take another example, um, the play The Frogs, which is much later by Aristophanes, um, and which has um, the immortal chorus of frogs. The frogs go brekekex, brekekex, coax, coax, coax. Um, and that's the translation, as well as the original. Um, it's quite an amazing thing, the chorus of frogs. Um, and the frogs is about, uh, it, it's a competition between um, Euripides and Aeschylus for who the great tragedian is. Um, the, in the frogs, Aristophanes has a lot to say about Alcibiades, the general, who has been exiled and then called back to Athens um, and who is always in a, in a somewhat um, precarious situation with respect 
to the Athenians, and um, Aristophanes is on his side, and it's actually um, during the frogs, Alcibiades has been exiled, and Aristophanes is needling the Athenians for exiling their great general. So Alcibiades, there he is in the banquet with Aristophanes and Socrates, and they're hanging out together and drinking together. Um, but Aristophanes is also makes pointed references to everyone, what he is as uh, someone who does comedy is someone who's irreverent. Um, and it's pretty obvious how irreverent, I hope, um, the clouds is. Uh, the translation here is accurate, which it was very hard to get an accurate translation of Aristophanes until about the second half of the 20th century. Um, people tended to clean it up and, and bodlerize it. And mm -hmm. um, it was thought that guys like you shouldn't know the sort of thing that was going on back then. Um, but now from, from this, as well as from the symposium, you can start getting the sort of thing that was going on back then. Yeah? A uh, question. Um, how, did, uh, how did Aristophanes' audience take, uh, take atheism? I don't, I don't know historically. Was it, was it acceptable? Was it, uh, was it Anything is acceptable in comedy. But no, they were against atheism. And again, one of the accusations against Socrates is that he's an atheist that he has to defend himself from. Um, and then the question is, well, if he's not an atheist, which he denies being, um, he denies that he's an atheist, and he particularly says in the Apology, what's his proof that he's not an atheist in the Apology? Yeah. Was Aristophanes around when we were trying Socrates? Yes, he was. How did he feel about it? I don't think we know, but I'm sure he was against it. Um, but what's Socrates' proof? Yeah. Well, first, he believes in demonia. Yes, he believes and in daimons. Also, he said he does say a, a, a few parts that got or some divine powers telling him that he needs to do what he's doing. Yes, and that divine power actually in Greek is a daimon. He says, "I have a daimon who comes around with me, and never tells me what to do, but does tell me when I'm doing the wrong thing." Um, it's a it's a spirit. Daimon means spirit. Um, and it's a spirit who stops me from doing the wrong thing. And that spirit did not stop me from coming to this trial, he said. So clearly that spirit isn't, um, did, doesn't think that my dying would be a wrong thing. But that's another bit of evidence on his part that he's, a, that he's not an atheist. Is it, is it true evidence? Um, well, he's a skeptic, so it might be that he's an agnostic. Um, but it's not quite. But he's certainly not going around saying there is no there is no God, um, and you shouldn't believe in them. He might be more or less um, a kind of monotheistic pantheist. That is that there's there's something um, that is um, uh, governing or is identical to the world of forms beyond the visible world. Although he's not saying that in the Apology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is that there's an inconsistency in the accusation if he simultaneously believes in the descendants of the gods in one way or another, but who would they be descended from if not from the gods themselves? So again, he's denying the consistency of the accusation against him. And I just want to say, this is something we're going to get back to in a second, but consistency for Socrates um, is probably the most important single philosophical virtue. 
um, or at least inconsistency, is the most important single philosophical weakness. Inconsistency is what he's always probing in those he's arguing against. He's always trying to show ways in which, without knowing it, they're being inconsistent. Simon. Mm, oh, wasn't no. it up? Okay. I was going to say something, and then you said it halfway through the, what you were saying. Okay. Um, so what you get then in Aristophanes is someone who is, you know, uh, maybe like James Carville and Mary Maitland. I mean, they're friends, but they disagree. And it's worthwhile considering what the disagreement between Socrates and Aristophanes is. Um, Aristophanes is um, a really wonderful comic playwright. All his comic plays are all the surviving plays, and there are a lot of them, um, are hilarious and dirty and over the top. And what he makes fun of are the serious people around. Um, and it's not that he doesn't think that they're serious. Um, and it's not that he doesn't um, get the seriousness of, of their work. Um, again, one of the things about the frogs is that it's a comic debate judged by Dionysus, who's the god of drunkenness, the god of wine, <laughs> and therefore the god of drunkenness, about who is a better playwright, Euripides or Aeschylus. And the, once, once you get to the actual argument, who's a better playwright, Euripides or Aeschylus, the argument is actually really serious. Um, so even though the context is comic, again, think John Stewart. Even though the context is comic and the judge is comic, like someone doing an interview, um, a John Stewart-type interview, um, um, the um, claims that are being made back and forth are serious. And there's a way that Aristophanes um, figures out a way um, to, to um, essentially make them tied. But if they're not tied, it's Aeschylus, which is a surprise, because Aeschylus is the old-fashioned dramatist. Um, Aeschylus is outmoded. Aeschylus is stiff and um, antiquated. And there's some fun, of, of the some fun made of the antiquated already in the clouds. Um, the frogs is 20 years later, and Aeschylus is um, someone who's just regarded as so last century. Wait. Um, yeah. So Aeschylus and Euri were Aeschylus and Euripides still alive at the time? No, they were both dead. And the debate occurs in Hades. In, in, okay. um, in, uh, Dionysus goes down there. They're, they're on their way to Hades, and Sophocles has actually just died also. So the three great tragedians um, are all three dead, and this is a debate that is being judged in the House of Hades. Um, it's, it's a really interesting play. If we were doing Aeschylus or Euripides in this class, we would have done that play. Because we're doing Socrates, um, I thought we'd do the clouds instead. But it's just, I'm just trying to give you a sense of, of the kinds of things Aristophanes does. He's a brilliant comic playwright who will um, treat anything irreverently. And he talks about this um, in the clouds, for example, I mean, just to, just to give an example of the sort of thing he's doing, um, can you think of a self-referential moment in the clouds? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he attacks, he says, you know, what is wrong with you? This is such a great play. Um, yeah. I can't believe I've had to rewrite it for you. What, one point I remember one of the characters met saying something along the lines of, who writes this crap? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And another point, um, Socrates says, you're not a character in a play. What are you doing here? <laughs> um, the All point right. being... Then, then when, wasn't it Pheidippides at one point actually addresses the audience? Yeah. Um, so those moments, especially when, you, when, you, when Socrates says, I mean, I think it's very telling for Socrates to um, say, you're not a character in a play, when in fact he is a character in a play. Um, and then what that is giving you, a, the reason Aristophanes says that, um, the, the point of that line is to say, look, there's actually a lot of fun and games going on here. And fun and games is the one thing that you won't get in these serious people like Socrates. Um, that is that they don't get that there can be fiction and fiction can be fun, or at least they don't get that you can have that kind of fun. So what you get consistently um, in Aristophanes is a worldly opposition. I look at this world, look around at this world, look at the stuff that's going on in this world. Worldly opposition to the Socratic or the philosophical head-in-the-clouds idea. So Socrates is paying no attention to what goes on in this world, except when it comes to money, which is um, un completely unfair to Socrates, but not unfair to the sophists in general. So, um, so let me just say a little bit about who the sophists are, because they're mentioned in the Apology, and, when the, and they're mentioned in the Mino also, in the, in the dialogues that we read. The sophists were essentially, if you read the notes, you'll know this, the sophists were essentially people who taught argument for money. Um, they were the, uh, the first law school teachers, you could say, the first forensic teachers, um, the first teachers who taught how to argue so that you would win an argument um, on either side. They taught how to debate. And what was what Socrates didn't like about them was that they would debate either side of a question, that they were willing to debate either side of a question. So what Socrates saw in the Sophists were people who talked for victory, to quote Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century English critic, people who talked for victory rather than for truth. Um, who would argue either side and try to be victorious. The famous um, uh, Texas prosecutorial um, dictum is it's very easy to convict a guilty person, but you have to be really good to convict an innocent person. Um, and so the good prosecutors in Texas are the ones who are able to convict the innocent. Um, and, you know, that's, it's a joke, but a kind of serious joke among Texas lawyers that the good prosecutors are the ones who manage to convict the innocent. Why is that only in Texas? It's just they're only open about it in Texas because oh. they're shameless. Um, <laughs> it's true everywhere, but they're open about it in Texas. Um, and it's actually a supreme, it's, it's uh, some, of the, some of the more conservative justices on the Supreme Court think that that's fine that justice is procedure. It's not about finding truth, it's about fair procedures. And if you can um, <laughs> convict an innocent, actual innocence is not, Scalia has actually said this, actual innocence is not um, a defense um, once, you've been, once you've been proved guilty. If you can prove that you're innocent after you've been found guilty, um, actual innocence won't necessarily get you um, 
released or indeed get you not executed. It's interesting, um, interesting that that's the conservative view now, because like in these things, you can see that that's definitely like the fringe radical, yeah, new ideas yeah. area. Yeah, but but so the idea among the sophists was um, the sophists would be able to um, give persuasive arguments on either side of an issue. Um, and that was called making the worser argument the better. Um, that's frequently how it appears in Socratic dialogues, and it's also how it's also the accusation against Socrates that he's made the worser argument the better. That is, that the wrong has defeated the right, that wrong is more persuasive than right. And so when you get the debate staged in clouds between wrong and right, um, the fact that wrong wins that debate, it may not be persuasive okay. to you, but wrong is certainly um, um, pretty energetic in debate, although right is pretty energetic also. Um, you wouldn't think that right would be talking quite as salaciously as he does. Um, but the point is that Socrates is represented as a sophist in clouds. He's represented as one of the whole band of those who teach argument um, because they are so good at arguing. And it is Socrates himself, what he says in the Apology is, I never took a penny to teach argument. The sophists did. They argued for money, and they taught how to argue for money. I argued for truth, or at least I argued against untruth. And it wasn't my concern to make money by being able to win arguments even when they were um, um, difficult to win. The sophists mongered in paradoxes. Um, a famous sophistic anecdote is that one of the sophists um, taught um, ha taught his students how to make the, the worser argument the better. And one of them um, paid this, um, this sophist, and then he went and did an argument in a court and lost. And he demanded his money back. And the sophist said, um, why should I give you your money back? And he said, because I lost my argument. And the sophist said, yeah, that's a really good argument. See? Um, you win, but because you win, that proves that you shouldn't get your money back. You defeated me, after all, in argument. And therefore, I can't give you your money back. Um, so it's a catch-22. Um, they argued through catch-22s. Now, you can see how Socrates does the same thing. Um, but his claim, so if you're unfriendly to Socrates, what you will say is, um, no matter what position I stake out, he's going to use a procedure to find, to prove to me that I mean the opposite of what I think I mean or that I'm contradicting myself. No matter what I say, I say something like, people should be virtuous. And Socrates immediately starts saying, what are you talking about? Um, I agree that people should be virtuous, but do you really agree? And he, and he ties me up in knots. Um, the English phrase, which actually comes from um, Shakespeare, is chop logic. Um, and what chop logic is, is um, just logically splitting things up in such a way that you get to paradox or contradiction. So logic chopping is what Socrates is accused of in the Apology and what he's also accused of in Clouds. And it, it's taking an argument and turning it into 
a contradiction. The sophists were very good at that. The thing about Socrates is he tended to argue against the sophists. And the first thing he says to Mino is Mino says, yeah, I've been talking, talking to that great person, Gorgias, who's just an incredible um, philosopher. And Socrates, through Mino, is, is arguing against Gorgias. And Gorgias is the greatest of sophists. That is, he's, he's actually a, a fairly great arguer. Um, there is a platonic dialogue, Socrates actually arguing with Gorgias um, face to face. Um, and Socrates doesn't do nearly as well, although he, does, he eventually does well, but he doesn't do nearly as well as when he's talking to Mino. That's, again, that's a, that, that argument occurs on, um, you need some familiarity with Socratic dialogue to get to um, that argument. Um, but what Aristophanes is consistently doing is saying, don't try to figure out what the heavens are. Don't try to figure out how gnats make their sounds. Um, don't try to figure out um, all these things, but, but deal with, again, to quote Dr. Johnson, real business with real people. Um, so that to, to get an example, which I think can typify this, is um, the chorus is um, uh, parodying um, and pretending to be on Socrates' side. This is, if you have this edition, page 91. Um, this is at line, line 412. The chorus's song is, O you who desire our high wisdom to learn, this is the cloud speaking, what kudos in Athens and Greece you will earn if you're ready to toil, if your memory's good, if you've got the ability to think, if standing and walking don't tire you nor deprivation of warmth, food, and drink, if exercise, wine, and all follies you shun, if your, values, if your values are those of the smart who worship success both in counsel and deed and in deft oratorical art. So you can really learn this stuff if you care about thinking, says the chorus. And then um, Strepsiades, um, or Strepsiades, we would um, anglicize it, says, well, I'm tough all right, and I do a lot of thinking, mostly of a sleepless night. And the point about that line is that for Socrates, thinking is this ivory, the, for Aristophanes and Socrates, thinking is this ivory tower activity um, with your head in the clouds, where you try to figure out how many feet a flea can jump, how many flea feet a flea can jump, if, if a flea jumper could jump feet, I don't know, um, or how gnats make their sound, or what the backside of the moon is, and so on. Um, Strepsiades thinks about money because he's full of anxiety. So there's thinking about um, philosophy and there's thinking about money. And for Aristophanes, as for Bertolt Brecht much later, you can only think about philosophy if you're not in debt. Um, but, the, but real life is life where people have real problems and can't just go around in this la-di-da sort of way. Yeah. So question about, probably a question about the translation. This page actually has a kind of strange thing happening with the lines. It goes 410, 411, 423, 426, 412. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a note on that. Um, that is that the editor, um, Alan Summerstein, is, um, he's actually a Greek scholar who, along with various other people, think that there's some corruption in the text, and they've um, 
they've moved a couple of speeches around to make it make more sense. Um, okay. I mean, there's there's certainly some corruption in the text. Um, it was, uh, and as people looked at it very closely, they had to they had to um, figure out how how a couple of speeches got moved around in transmission. Um, so you're right. The line numbers are the Greek line numbers. If you want to, if you're using this as a trot when you're reading Aristophanes in Greek, or if you want to look up the Greek, um, this will tell you what the Greek line numbers are. Okay. Ben, was your hand up? Um, okay. So the Aristophanes, the debate you could say between Aristophanes and Socrates. Socrates debates a lot of people. The debate between Aristophanes and Socrates is a debate between is a debate between um, those who on Aristophanes' side, the side of comedy. Um, and this is, by the way, you could say this is the history in the West of comedy versus tragedy. Um, not comedy versus epic. Epic is also about um, this world as well as the other world. It's, um, but it's something that you could say is we get a little bit between the Iliad and the Odyssey. The debate between comedy and tragedy is comedy is basically, um, there's a lot of stuff to deal with in this world, and um, it's don't pretend that there isn't, and don't think that you're too good for this world. Um, so comedy is low, but it's got a point in being low. It's not the really great comic writers are in no way unaware of the alternative. The really great comic writers are writers who have reasons to go against the alternative. So there's a famous um, midrash about um, the relationship between Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes that some of you may know. Do people know um, those books of the Bible, Song of Songs, Shir HaShirim, and Ecclesiastes? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Ecclesiastes, you will know from its most famous line, is the sun also rises. Um, and there's also a song to everything. There's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, um, which became a, during the great folk scare of the 60s, it became a folk, folk scare. song. Yeah. Um, when it looked like folk songs were going to take over from rock and roll, but thank God they didn't. Um, so um, the Ecclesiastes is, um, begins, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Um, so all, everything is vanity, um, says the preacher. The preacher, it begins... It begins by identifying who the preacher is. The preacher is King Solomon. Um, so, so it's the words of the preacher, um, uh, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is the, are actually the first words. And here are his words. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Um, and Ecclesiastes, as it's called in English, is the only book in the Bible to end with the word evil. Um, and if you look at a Hebrew version, what you'll see is the second to last verse. Do people know this? If you look at Ecclesiastes or Kohelet in Hebrew, the second to last verse is repeated in small type after the last verse so that it shouldn't end with the word evil in print. Um, so if you look at it in a Hebrew Bible, 
um, you'll just see this little small type repetition of the penultimate verse. But so people know that there's something really grim about this book, which is essentially um, that everything is meaningless. It's a high. It's 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 a it's a work that is very inflected by Greek nihilism, by a certain kind of Greek nihilism. Um, and it's the sun also riseth, and the sun also setteth, and hasteneth to the place where he ariseth again, and there is nothing new under the sun. Um, that's all Ecclesiastes. So that so Ecclesiastes is one of the biblical books said to be written by King David. The other biblical books said to be written by I mean excuse me by Solomon. The other biblical book said to be written by Solomon is Song of Songs. Um, which is um, in the voice of a female, um, and it's all about sex. So Ecclesiastes is all about, um, about the meaninglessness and illusoriness of all life and the pointlessness of it all. Um, says better to be dead than to be alive, although it's also better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Um, and Song of Songs is, is all about, um, uh, is, is completely life-affirming. So what you see in those two works are extremes in Solomon's attitude towards the world. Now, the standard Midrashic commentary on Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes is that Song of Songs was Solomon as a young man rejoicing, as David puts it in the Psalms, in the fullness of his strength, like a, like a, strong, um, like a strong man who's um, running a race and he's happy and he's full of um, sexual hormones and um, he just loves life and then when he gets to be old and grim and bitter he writes Ecclesiastes and says it was all BS and that's the standard view in the kind of reconstructed um, biography of Solomon um, none of this is true, but it's but that's the because it's almost certainly the case that Solomon didn't actually write Ecclesiastes nor Song of Songs, but certainly not Ecclesiastes. But at any rate, this is the standard story. But there's another better story, which is that, and this is what you should think of when you think Aristophanes, which is that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes as an angst-ridden adolescent. It's the work of an 18-year-old. Um, Vanity of vanities, not that there's anything wrong with that, but vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And then as an old man, he wrote Song of Songs. That is, that's when he became fully able to embrace life. Um, the second to last thing we'll be doing in this class is the work called the comedy. Um, and the comedy begins in hell and ends in paradise. Um, it's now called the Divine Comedy, but that was not Dante's name for it. He simply called it the Comedy. Um, and again, the point is the Comedy is a work that gets grimmer and grimmer and grimmer for its first third. It's a hundred um, cantos long. Um, there's an introductory canto, and then you have 33 cantos in hell that get worse and worse and worse, but it ends with spectacular joy. And again, it's the, the, what the great comedians do, including Shakespeare, what the great comedians do is they understand tragedy and then having shown their understanding of it, they move to comedy. 
Another example is Don Quixote. Um, Don Quixote is a tragic figure um, who is um, rescued by his comic story. Um, he wants to be tragic, but he's comic. And that's the great thing about him. So what really great comedy tends to do is to stage an opposition between tragedy or grimness or a sense of the nothingness of human life, um, to quote Shelley on Byron, to stage an opposition between those things, not to not see that things are grim and terrible, but to stage that opposition and to have life defeat death. Um, but life defeat death not out of blindness, but in with full insight. And that, you could say, is what Aristophanes is trying against Socrates. Um, Socrates is someone who's not afraid of death um, in the Apology, which is, which is um, 22 years later. But he's someone not in any way afraid of death. In Aristophanes, he is afraid of death. Um, what happens at the end of the play is, and this is, this is a spectacular thing to see on stage, um, the play is shown once. And what then happens is the houses are burnt down on stage. That is, it's kind of burning man in Athens. Wow. Um, and th so you have this spectacular thing. And Socrates, Socrates saves himself. He takes to his heels. Um, and his students take to their heels. The point is that, um, yeah, when it comes right down to it, yes, live. Do that. Um, and life means having to deal with debts and creditors and um, sons who prefer horses to working hard and um, all sorts of really difficult things. Um, but that's what's funny about life, and that's also um, what gives it its energy. And um, sure, it fills you with worries and you feel oppressed by things and so on, but all of that is daily life. If you've ever seen the movie My Dinner with Andre, um, and if you haven't, you probably should at some point. Um, but if you've ever seen the movie My Dinner with Andre, um, that's the debate between Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn. Um, and Wallace Shawn, at the end of the movie, is, is, just has this amazing aria to um, the cockroach that he sees in his coffee cup. Um, and how great that is, that you wake up and you have to deal with a cockroach in your coffee cup. Um, not, you don't, you're not dealing with, with going to Tibet and learning all about um, Satori. You're dealing with this roach in your cup, but you can go downstairs and get a bagel and cream cheese, and that's really pretty great. Um, that's what, he's on the Aristophanes side. Andre Gregory is on the Socrates side. Yeah. What is that called again? My Dinner with Andre, a Louis Mal movie. Um, it's a, it's a really great movie, um, as I may have indicated. Um, has anyone seen Vanya on 42nd Street? Um, same characters, um, same director, same characters. That is Louis Malle, um, Andre Gregory, and Wallace Shawn is, is um, it. It's, it's, it's a similar sort of thing. A very tight, small-scale shooting, but um, amazing conversation. Um, so Aristophanes, and that's why Aristophanes has the hiccups in, um, in the symposium. Um, that is, look, real life. Um, you know, I compared it before to Telemachus sneezing. Um, Telemachus sneezes in the Odyssey because the Odyssey is not about being heroic. 
It's about what life at home is like and why that's a good thing. Why it's better to be at home sneezing than to be in the Trojan Wars building funeral pyres. Um, and you may not think that, but that ultimately is the is where Homer comes down. Yeah. Just, I mean, it, do you really think that's about you know the hiccups is about this is real life? Well, I think it's no. I, so the thing about the symposium is, is that Plato the symposium is written well after the execution of Socrates, and um, it's it, there are multiple distancing devices from the very start. That is, we're getting a dialogue where one person says what he heard from another person about what happened among these still other people, which Plato is now taking down. So it's three or four, and the point is you're supposed to see that it's three or four nestings away. It's not, oh, well, I don't believe this. Um, it's, it is three or four nestings away, and the point is this was a different world that this thing happened. This was a different time. And you're supposed to see how far away this was. Um, and just because of that, there's a way that it's preserved as its own story rather than as part of the flow of history. So does Aristophanes get the hiccups? Um, uh, well, what's your question? Well, I mean, you know, I, I guess it's just, you know, when, when, I, when I read the, the sneeze line in uh, the Odyssey, you know, it just before we talked about it, you know, it just stuck out. It was like, this is very different and it's very fantastic. Uh, and I mean, not that there isn't, you know, a really cool and fun quality to Aristophanes hiccuping, mm -hmm. but I just, I'm not sure if I agree with it. it you know, it feels more placed in there for the absurd and comic effect than for sort of. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Like the glory of a sneeze. No, it's not. No, no, no. It is placed there for for comic effect. Did you? Do you want to? I was going to ask if it implied that he was really drunk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is really drunk except Socrates, who can hold his liquor. Really. Uh, just, just to respond to that, uh, I think this is um, one of the earliest examples of what of what Milton and Bulgakov do uh, and others in, 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 in humanizing something that may not be so tangible. Mm -hmm. So with Milton, you have you know you have angels and and and, and, and fallen angels battling. This is really epic. I mean, you have some of them you know going out to the field and playing music, uh, and you have in Bulgakov you have. Well, you also have in Milton, as people will see, you have Raphael blushing, which is um, quite an amazing moment. And it's, it's, you're right, that's Milton. I mean, you're not right, I'm right. Um, <laughs> but you're right, too. That's, that's, that's uh, Milton's equivalent of that. What happens is you'll see, so here's our little Paradise Lost um, um, tidbit of the day. Um, Raphael comes down to tell Adam and Eve, this is, this is the part in Milton where the um, where you get uh, retrospective narrative, which you get a lot of in the Odyssey, Menelaus and Odysseus um, uh, describing what has happened before where we are now. In Milton, the angel Raphael describes what happens before the creation of Adam, and he describes a war in heaven. And he goes on and on about this war in heaven between the forces of Satan, and it's an Iliadic war. Um, the forces of Satan, it's also a Virgilian war, but the forces of Satan versus the forces of God um, guess who wins? Um, and then um, Raphael says, so here you are in Eve in this wonderful garden, and you guys look really happy. You should stay happy. 
and whatever you do, don't eat the fruit of the tree um, because that would be stupid. Um, and Adam says, you're right, we really are happy. It's totally great. Um, in fact, one of the things that makes us happiest is sex. Um, and you guys, you know, you say that eventually if we're good, we could come up to heaven. But I really have a question for you. Do you guys have sex? Because it's like important to us. Um, and at that point, Raphael blushes. Um, and uh, Milton calls it love's rosy color. Um, and then he kind of hems and haws, but allows us how the angels do have sex, but he doesn't want to go into that right now. Um, <laughs> but um, that moment of blushing is, is, is we're right, um, like um, the sneezing or the hiccups. It's an unexpected um, uh, autonomous reaction. Um, not that they knew that hiccups, blushing, and sneezing all occurred as, um, as autonomous reflexes, but they still had a sense of them as being similar sorts of things, things not in, in control. Yeah? Because I was thinking when I read about the hiccups, I was thinking it was just like Aristophanes being, um, you know, the jokester. It's kind of yeah. like, oh, yeah, I have the hiccups. Pass on. I, w I want to be later. I'm better than this guy. I want to I have next to the last word. Yeah. Yes. So, so the point is, it's... There are two ways of seeing it. One is that Aristophanes is having the hiccups um, intentionally. That is, that he's being the jokester. Um, and the other is that it's, that it's Plato's intention rather than Aristophanes's. But either way, it, it's appropriate to Aristophanes. That is, that um, as Aristotle will say, and we will not read this because um, it's so misleading. You should read this in some other class, Aristotle's Poetics, but we won't read it in this class because it's so misleading. About, um, about what comes before Aristotle. But Aristotle says that one of the requirements of drama is that characters should speak in a way that's consistent with who they are. And so it's consistent with what Aristophanes is, that he should get drunk and start hiccuping. The question is, who provides that consistency? Is it Aristophanes himself who's saying, Look, I'm in this Platonic dialogue. We actually are in a play here now. This is Plato's play. Um, and I'm going to, I'm actually kind of good as a playwright. Um, Agathon is getting the prize for tragedy. But, you know, what do I think about tragedy? Um, and what I think about it is let's get drunk and hiccup. Um, and so he does. Or it's Plato who does it. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's always, the, always a question in a play. Um, whether you, and not not a, um, not either a trivial nor an important question, who you as ascribe an action to, to a character or to the writer who's who's made the character do that. So when Socrates says you're not in a play now, um, Aristophanes is obviously having fun at Socrates' expense at that point. Um, but if Socrates were, were to say, hey, you're in a play now, what are you talking about? There's a moment in Shakespeare um, w at the end of Love's Labor is Lost where um, it's a comedy and comedy is supposed to end in marriage, um, but the women in Love's Labor is Lost say, actually, we're going to wait a year um, because terrible things have happened um, off stage and we have to go into mourning for a year. But then if you're still interested in us a year from now, uh, we'll think about marrying you. And one of the characters says, that's too long for a play, um, waiting a year. Too long for a play. Um, so who's saying that, Shakespeare or that character? Well, in a way, both. 
Um, same with Aristophanes hiccuping. Who's hiccuping there? Who's making him hiccup? Is he doing it as, or is Plato doing it? Plato is saying it's right for Aristophanes to hiccup. Aristophanes would agree, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, uh, actually, might, might Socrates, like, kind of leaning on the fourth wall saying, like, oh, you're not in a play here. Might that be a way, uh, a way of Aristophanes kind of acknowledging that, oh, by the way, the Socrates I'm portraying is not, ac not necessarily accurate to the real Socrates? What, say more. Why would that be? Um, well, because he obvious. I, I I think it's pretty obvious that Aristophanes didn't mean Socrates any any ill. Yeah. So so by saying you're not in a play, what he's actually saying is this is actually the play Socrates. Yeah. Um, there will be differences. Yeah. Okay. That's a nice idea. That is to say that if someone denies, I mean, it's also an interesting philosophical argument. But if someone denies in a play if someone denies that they're in a play, that's a way for the play to say they really are a fictional person. Incidentally, where is that? Um, it's, let me see if I can find it quickly. Um, I probably can't. Um, yeah, sorry, it's uh, line 297. Um, this is, Stripsides says, I need to shit, I need a crap, and Socrates is shocked, shocked, as Claude Rain says to find this kind of thing going on. No buffoonery, please. You're not acting in a comedy now. Keep silence. There's a great swarm of divinities in musical movement. Emily. Um, I also find in Plato, like, that you highlight often, especially in the Republic, that there's a lot of characters. Uh-huh. Nice, yeah. Party, all the other people's party had those long speeches. Yeah. He can't give a long speech. And instead, he reminisces about a dialogue he had. Right, with, the, with the Atima, yeah. Right, and that's something that, just to, just to tell you that, that's exactly right. And what, in a way, what we've what we've backed into, but it's it's a really important thing to back into, is the sense of Plato as a playwright. Um, that is that we're looking at two different authors who provide arguments and dialogue, um, and the way Socrates argues in dialogue is um, in general to um, have conversations back and forth and to ask questions. In the middle dialogues, where Plato starts giving his own ideas, he will frequently have Socrates report what someone has said to him that he finds convincing. Um, so you will get Socrates still speaking and still the bearer of philosophical insight, of the most important philosophical insight. He'll still be speaking, but he'll often say, here's what someone said to me, and I found that I agreed. Um, and so what he says about his conversation with Diotima is, um, I mean, it's a very interesting moment because he essentially um, does a recap of what everyone before him has said. Um, he says, well, I thought maybe there used to be three sexes, or she said, or all those people who, used to th who think that there are three sexes, they're wrong also. Um, but you're right that what Plato as playwright is doing there um, is keeping Socrates as himself by, as someone who simply um, asks skeptical questions. And then when Plato wants to deliver um, an idea 
um, which goes beyond the kinds of things Socrates says. He simply has Socrates describe something that someone else said to him that he found he agreed with. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think the the um, the Diatima um, passage is incredible. It's um, a lot of people historically. I don't know how strongly I want to put this, but fairly strongly. Um, find the symposium the great. If you had to pick one greatest of all dialogues, it would be the symposium. Um, it's as soon as I say that, it sounds stupid. It's like saying King Lear is Shakespeare's greatest play. Um, there are just too many other rivals to be confident that you can say that. But the symposium is always up there. Um, and the very center of the symposium. I mean, there's a portrait of Socrates that you get from Alcibiades, which is amazing and fairly accurate. If you read the introduction to, um, which I have mixed feelings about, um, but if you read the introduction to The Clouds in the Penguin, um, Socrates's courage and strength and disdain for physical um, misery um, when he was a soldier. That's something that both Aristophanes and um, um, Alcibiades completely agree on. Um, that is that Socrates was, was an extraordinary um, figure of physical courage, um, not only of moral courage, but of physical courage. And he really did rescue the Athenians in a really seriously bad military situation. Um, and he did it without being nice about it, which is one thing that people resented about him. Um, so, but, so, that, so the portrait of Socrates that you get by, from Alcibiades is quite an amazing thing. Um, but still probably even more amazing is Socrates' long account um, of what he learned from um, Diotima, which is, um, uh, where is it? Um, it starts around page 97. This is, oh, no, you don't have the same page number. So around 201A, um, uh, and. Um, line your page. Um, sorry, this is line. Plato. Plato. This is uh, in the Stephanus numbering, 201A. So what page is that? 105. Okay, 105. Um, so now you shall have peace from me, he says, after he's um, questioned um, Agathon. Um, uh, well, actually, it's worth, let me just look at the lines before that. Socrates says, Agathon, I really could not contradict you. Let it be as you say. Contradict the truth, you should say, beloved Agathon. That is, you really can't contradict the truth, he replied. <laughs> you can't do that. But to contradict Socrates is easy enough. Um, that is actually probably um, a very central um, uh, formulation for how Socrates works. So let me just say, let, let, let's just deal with the ancient philosophical question of truth very, very rapidly, and I'll tell you the truth about truth. Um, there, are two, there are two very old theories of truth, of what is truth. You will remember that that's the question that Pilate asks um, before condemning Jesus to crucifixion. What is truth, asks Pontius Pilate, and washes his hands. Um, Francis Bacon in the 17th century, in his essay of truth, begins that essay. What is truth, asked jesting Pilate, 
and would not stay for an answer. Um, so that question, what is truth, that's a really old question. Um, there are two basic theories of truth. Now there are others. Um, and uh, um, recent philosophical ideas about truth um, are in some ways like this and some not. But truth is a really hard question. Um, but there are two basic theories about truth. One is the more or less standard one, which is called the correspondence theory of truth. And that's the one that pretty much has reigned philosophically for a very long time. And the correspondence theory of truth is um, that you, you say a sentence like um, the computer is on the table, and that sentence has a meaning. You could say it in a different language, but it would mean the same thing. Um, the standard versions are snow is white and der Schnee is weiss. Um, different sets of phonemes, but they mean the same thing. The thing that they mean is a proposition. Um, so it doesn't matter whether you say it in English or in German or in French. What you're saying in all those cases is a proposition which in English we call the snow is white. And that proposition is a mirror or picture of a fact, namely that snow is white. So the world has snow in it, less and less with global warming, but there's still snow in the world. Um, and there's also whiteness in the world. And um, there's just stuff in the world. But there are facts also about that stuff in the world. Now, facts don't actually exist in the same way that things exist. Um, it's hard to say what the existence of a fact is. In fact, you could, in fact, you could say um, that's a question that Socrates is trying to answer. What does it mean for something to be a fact rather than simply um, snow, whiteness, stuff everywhere? Um, well, facts kind of exist because it's not just a jumble of stuff, but the stuff is in a certain um, order or configuration. And somehow facts are giving you what that order and configuration is. Nevertheless, what a fact is, is something that takes a step towards sentences. Facts are things that sentences seem to have the same form as sentences. Or another way we could put it is to say sentences seem to have the same form as facts. Aristotle will more or less say this. That is, um, here is a pen, here's a table, but there's a relationship between the pen and the table, namely that the pen is on the table, the table is under the pen. That's a fact, not just low, pen, low a pen, low a table, but no, pen on table, table under pen, table supports pen. Those are facts, and they're facts which seem to have um, the structure of a sentence, namely there's a subject, let's talk about this pen, that's a thing in the world, and let's say something about it. It's on the table. And that's a fact, but that's also a proposition. So the correspondence theory of truth is that facts are a step from the world towards language. Propositions are a step from language towards the world. Because propositions, it doesn't matter what language you say them in. So that in English, I say the pen is on the table, but that's just a bunch of sounds. Those sounds, however, mean something, namely what you understand me to mean if you are an English speaker, by my saying 
the pen is on the table and what, if you were a German speaker, you would understand by my saying that in German. Um, and therefore, the meaning of the sentence, I say a sentence in English, the meaning of the sentence corresponds to the fact of the matter. So what there is in the world is matter. But there are certain facts about that, which we call the fact of the matter. And the fact and the meaning line up. So you can trace this to the word pen, this to the word table, and a certain way that the pen has of lying there to the words is on. And so there's a correspondence, a mapping from one to the other. That's the correspondence theory of truth. It's probably the case that Socrates and also Plato had a different theory of truth that sounds and feels a lot like the correspondence theory of truth and is similar in a lot of ways but different in some crucial ways. And that's called the coherence theory of truth. And the coherence theory of truth brings in or starts with logic. That is, that if you have a true statement, whatever that would mean for it to be true, everything else in the universe has to be logically consistent with that. Nothing in the correspondence theory of truth requires logical consistency. That's a really important thing to see. Logical consistency is not implied by the correspondence theory of truth. Just think of a movie where you can see a pen on the table and then the pen disappears, or where you can cut to a pen on the table and a pen somewhere else and then cut back to the pen on the table, and you have a bunch of facts and they're inconsistent, but so what? Think of a fictional novel. Sherlock Holmes was killed the next day, or just think of, think of Lewis Carroll's nonsense because Carroll was a logician interested in these things. Um, the sun was shining bright and this was very strange because, you know, it was the middle of the night. Anyone know where that's from? Quick extra credit. Oh, well, you Paul lose. What poem? Uh, All right, too late, though. The walrus and the carpenter. Did you pass the quiz? No. <laughs> All right, let, let, I'll, I'll give you one more right, um, because it's important to know the walrus and the carpenter. Um, OK, so the walrus and the carpenter, um, it's the sun is shining bright, but it's the middle of the night. So what? Two facts. They could both be true. What is it that stops them from both being true? Not correspondence, but logic. That is that essentially there's a law, this is Aristotle's law, of non-contradiction. And the idea that truth can't contradict itself comes out of a coherence or consistency <coughs> theory of truth, not out of a correspondence theory of truth. You may say, but how can reality contradict itself? But if you're asking that, what you're assuming is that reality is coherent. That is, you already have a coherence theory of truth if you think that reality is not self-contradictory. You could be right. You probably are right. However, a correspondence theory of truth doesn't tell you that. You need more to get the idea of non-contradiction. Plato is really very much an expositor, not of a correspondence theory of truth, but of a coherence theory of truth. And he has reasons for that. 
because he thinks reality does contradict itself. He thinks, for example, that if I say, this is a book and this is a book, I've now asserted two things that are contradictory. Namely, this equals book is like saying three equals three. This equals book is like saying four equals four. Or I'm somehow saying this equals this. And they don't. They're two separate books. So how can I be saying the same thing of two different things? How can I say this is a book and this is a book and be speaking truly of two different things? If you only have a correspondence theory of truth, there's no problem. Why, yes, book, here, fire, good, no, fire, bad, um, book, here. You know, all of this seems like nonsense, but it's the nonsense that Socrates is trying to understand. So the answer is, actually, neither of these is a real book. What they are are examples of the real book. The real book, which is in the world of forms. Yeah, Julian. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he does. And his and um, he's one of the people who's going to have a who's going to have revolutionary ideas about truth, or is going to revolutionize some people's thinking about what truth is. Um, but the point again is that. In order to have non-contradiction in a world which by itself seems highly contradictory, you need to go elsewhere for Socrates. But you can already feel this is what middle and early Socrates have in common, is non-contradiction. Now, what early Socrates does is he says, you have a theory of virtue. What do you think it is? And then he shows that the person is contradicting himself. And Socrates says, Therefore, you, what you're saying can't be true. Why? Because it's self-contradictory. Now, a lot of what we think reading Socrates is actually, it doesn't seem so self-contradictory. Virtue for um, one kind of person is different from virtue for another kind of person. That's what Aristophanes is making fun of. That is that what's virtuous in a father is not virtuous in a son. What's virtuous in a son is not virtuous in a father. It's fine for a father to um, beat his son um, in order to teach him a lesson. It's not fine for a son to beat his father in order to teach him a lesson. Socrates would say that's a contradiction. Aristophanes would say that's life. That's, that's actually the way things are. Um, so there again, in a way that might be unexpected, you can see the difference between Aristophanes, who's completely unworried about a certain kind of consistency, because real life is messy, and Socrates, who is always saying what you're saying now is inconsistent. And that's a crucial difference between them. OK, um, we're now finally at this late stage in this class. We're falling behind a little bit. <laughs>